The opinions and views expressed on this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information about this show or other programs on KUCI, please log on to KUCI.org for the latest program schedule. The Heather McCoy Show. Welcome to the Heather McCoy Show. In our middle segment today, we'll be talking with Dr. Russell Moore, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about gay marriage debate. And um, we'll talk about some Christian apologetics as well. Then rounding out the hour, Robert Larson will join us from the other side of Cleveland National Forest. But first, we'll start with our regular contributor, the blogger we find, fieldofschemes.com, Neil DeMoss. Welcome to the show, Neil. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Pretty well, actually. Um, last week, um, we had major developments in the city of Sacramento. Last Tuesday night, the city council made a non-binding vote to go ahead with the project to fund an arena by 7 to 2. Only 13 people of 58 can get in uh, that signed up to, uh, to talk for the uh, two-minute increments that each one is awarded in the public hearing. A bunch of people did get shut out. Is shutting out the public uh, that didn't arrive by 5.30 a normal thing with these type of public proceedings? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if normal is quite the the. It's not that uncommon. Let's put it that way. You know, I mean, I've seen a lot of different uh, different uh, public meetings around the country where they have, you know, the first people to get in the door are the people who can who can testify. Um, and oftentimes, it's you know, um, construction unions will all get there real early, you know, get the time off work and go uh, and go jam up all the seats that happened in the Bronx with Yankee Stadium. Um, or something like what happened in Sacramento, where it was you know the the booster club for uh, for the Kings basically got all these folks in um, to uh, to clog up all the seats, um, which is legit. You know, I mean, you can do it, but um, it's sort of a problem when there are other people. I mean, you know, there's this group out in Sacramento that did this fantastic report um, analyzing the proposed arena deal and pulling out all the holes in it, and they had were, had to resort to like you know going out and handing out copies to the press, um, you know, who were sitting there because they couldn't actually get in and testify. Yeah. Uh, are there any more details coming out this week that made this, uh, you know, proposed deal look even more like a house of cards for the city of Sacramento? Um, <laughs> you know, it's like about as as house of cardsy as you could get already. <laughs> um, what's weird is it's sort of everything, everything sort of died down now. You know, I mean, there was there was the vote and there was sort of all this uh, excitement about it, and you know, the there hasn't been a lot of investigation since then of okay, what the heck did they just exactly uh, just actually vote for? Yeah. Um, and I guess you know they're going to be presenting to the NBA tomorrow, um, so that the NBA can supposedly vote in a couple weeks on whether or not this team is going to move to Seattle or whether uh, they're going to reject that, which presumably means it they that the Maloof sell to this new group, although they don't have to, you know? The NBA just gives a thumbs up or thumbs down on selling to Seat- the Seattle group for now. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't think anybody really quite knows what's going to happen there. I mean, you know, my pet theory, and I may have mentioned this last week, is that the one thing the NBA can certainly do, since this is a non-binding vote for, by Sacramento and they still have to approve officially the financing plan, is there's nothing preventing the NBA from just saying, okay, we're not going to vote now, you know? Yeah. Yes, we've got an offer to, to, to buy the team, and we're going to think about it some more and see what, you know, what the two sides come up with. Um, I'm not saying that's necessarily going to happen. I don't have inside information, but, I mean, it's certainly they can do it. 
Yeah, since that vote on Tuesday, uh, Seattle's Chris Hansen, he made a bid for the 7% share of the Sacramento Kings that is currently in bankruptcy court, and he won. Um, it still doesn't change your prediction about kicking the can down the road a year? Um, that's an interesting question. I don't think they would kick it a year, um, and I don't think they would have to kick it a year um, to see sort of see what you know whether there's going to be a, a referendum overturning things, uh, this and things like that. Um, it's the one interesting question is whether they have to rule on the purchase of the bankruptcy seven percent any earlier than that. And I don't know enough about the intricacies of bankruptcy bankruptcy court to know whether they can put that on hold. Um, but you know, the NBA can approve or reject that the same way they can approve or reject any other kind of sale. Yeah. Um, and really, in the grand scheme of things, seven percent is not going to make a big difference. You know, if Hanson ends up with seven percent of the team but can't get the rest of it, it's not like he can do anything. He would just have to either sit on the seven percent or sell it. And you know, if he doesn't get the seven percent, it's not. It's then somebody else gets it again. That's not. It's not a huge. A huge deal. I feel like everybody's focusing on that because it's like something they can grab onto. But you know, really, this is about the NBA deciding where they want the team, and they can pretty much do that unless you know somebody thinks they can sue and uh, and overturn it. Yeah, and I think a lot of minority ownerships and teams, like seven percent, they change hands all the time. But it's in that little tiny section of the newspaper, like with minor league transactions, where no one actually sees it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I don't think this is a really huge deal. I mean, again, it's possible that you know because there's a court involved it could wind up being somewhat of a of an obstacle for one side or the other but you know realistically you know this is going to come down to the you know 30 people in a room at the NBA meetings later this month and you know, I don't think anybody can pretend to predict what 30 NBA owners are going to do. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a lot of personalities in one room. Yeah, since, as you were saying, since the next news item will be the uh, coming NBA's uh, owners meeting to hear the cases for Seattle and Sacramento being the home to the Kings. Um, how secret are those meetings, and does the details of those meetings usually, you know, wash up on the Miami shoreline with no party attached to them <laughs> like the Miami Marlins uh, financial documents presumably do? <laughs> <laughs> nice segue. Thanks. Um, yeah, I mean the, the the last time we had this it was a couple of years ago when the when the Kings were talking about moving to Anaheim, and you know the day of the hearings it was all behind closed doors and you know nobody knew it was going on. But eventually, you know, somebody talks. Um, again, there's enough people in the room or around the people who were in the room, that eventually you find out sort of the gist of what was discussed. But I think it was last time it was like about a week later before we knew exactly you know how how the uh, how it had gone down. And I think that's the same thing that's going to happen tomorrow. You know, I mean, there'll be a presentation. We won't know immediately how it went. And then, um, you know, probably the the NBA owners themselves will want to um, sort of telegraph which way the wind is blowing. So I'm sure we'll get some sort of, you know, unofficial official leak of, of at least who the front runner is. You know, or again, they might want to, want to uh, try to get somebody else to up the ante. So if uh you know we had david stern last month after the uh the sacramento group bid they're coming out and saying yeah nice bid but uh sweeten the pot a little will you um so the, again there there are no rules to this thing i think it's really important for people to understand you know it's not like this is a court of law and they have to you know have rules of evidence and rule ba- based on who is the you know they can they can like easily accept or reject an ownership group because they don't like the guy's face yeah um so i think you know it's it's going to come down to sort of again what the conversations are in that room and who thinks you know who who can win the day in terms of making an argument of what's best for the for the nba's finances over the long term
If they have to sweeten the pot, does that mean Kevin Johnson has to find another whale? Uh, you know, I don't know. I think probably the 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 current. It's not like the current whales, um, you know, who are looking at buying the team in Sacramento don't have money. I mean, yeah. you know, they could come up with more money. The problem is, at a certain point, I mean, we talked about this before, you know, the Hanson Group in Seattle is spending an awful lot for that team. And, you know, whether you're talking about the Seattle Group or the Sacramento Group, it, um, you know, at a certain point, it doesn't make sense to sweeten the pot anymore, you know. Yeah. Um, because you're not going to make any money on, on the investment. So that's that's what I sort of you know think we're sort of starting to hit up against, is my expectation is if you go back to the whales and say, we need more money, they're going to say, well, whether it's us or bringing in some other investor, you know, we're not going to make money on the deal if you, don't, if, if you raise the price too much. Yeah. So speaking of the Marlins, uh, last week an unnamed source uh, let the Miami Herald uh, reporters look at a copy of the books for the Marlins. The rules to look at the books are much like Mr. Thatcher's archive in Sis and Kane, where reporters cannot take notes or make copies. Um, what, what were the things that didn't add up, and what, uh, what was there that we already knew about the Marlins' profit margins? Yeah, I mean, so a couple of years ago, you know, Deadspin got these leaked documents talking about how the Marlins were were making money even when nobody was going to games in in the old stadium, um, and um, you know, there was obviously a big uh, uproar over that, saying, oh, you know, the the whole point of uh, of uh, revenue sharing was to you know help out teams, not to boost their profits after they trade all their decent players. Um, and, you know, one of the um, many reasons why everybody in the world hates Jeffrey Loria. <laughs> um, so this backed that up, um, but it had this, some really weird numbers about how much money that the Marlins had allegedly lost in both 2003, when they um, actually spent a little bit of money and won the World Series, and then last year when they obviously spent, again, not Yankees-level money, but a decent amount of money and accomplished absolutely nothing and traded half the guys by <laughs> midseason. Um, and, you know, these, these numbers, which, again, were provided by someone connected with the team. We don't know if it's the team itself or someone who has access to team figures. Um, had, like, the, you know, the Marlins losing $43 million in 2003 and $47 million last year. And, you know, the whole team's whole payroll in 2003 was only $54 million. So, and they got some money. You know, they sold some tickets. They had a TV deal. Um, they had that you know horrible lease um, at the time with uh, with uh, on, on whatever the Sun Life Stadium was called then. Um, but again, it's just it, it's um, it, the numbers are odd, and those particular numbers, which we obviously have not actually seen the documents, just these Miami Herald reporters got to sort of peek at them for a couple of hours. Um, you have to wonder whether there's some spin going on there. Um, I remember Andy Zimbalist like. Must have been the first time the Marlins won the World Series back in the '90s, uh, and we're asking for a stadium. Did a great uh, New York Times Magazine piece where he just broke down how the Marlins were claiming to lose money, and found that you know I think they were claiming to lose like 20 million dollars a year, and they were actually making 10 or 20 million dollars a year. Yeah, um, it's really really easy to you know um, you know using established bookkeeping methods claim a loss when you're actually making money. And that's my concern, is that, you know, the Marlins are just using this as an excuse to say, oh, you know, we had to get rid of all of our players. Look, we were losing $47 million. What, did you want us to keep doing that? Um, I don't know if that's really a good way of getting people to buy tickets, 
by saying, oh, yeah, our team still sucks because we're broke. But <laughs> at least maybe, maybe, maybe it'll get people to hate them a little bit less. And, and plus, it's hard to lose that much money when you have revenue sharing checks, too. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you're getting, they're getting, I forget what it is, it's like 40 or $50 million a year um, in revenue sharing. So, I mean, the, the, it, it doesn't add up. It's inconceivable. I mean, you know, Forbes, I think, had them losing like $7 million last year or something like that. That certainly is a possibility, um, but there's no possible way that they lost 40 or 50 million last year. Yeah. I mean, that's, just, that's just, you know, defies any logical explanation. Yeah, we'll leave off with baseball. Contrast the renovations that are taking place now at Dodger Stadium with the demands that the Atlanta Braves just made regarding their home field of Turner, uh, Turner Field. Yeah, I mean, so it, this seems to be sort of the trend we're heading towards, right? You know, we've, we've talked about this before, that the, the so many sports facilities were built in the 90s. It's a little bit early, unless you're the Atlanta Falcons, to <laughs> say, oh, you know, we've got this 20-year-old stadium. We want to tear it down and build a new stadium. Um, but a lot of teams are saying we want major renovations. And, you know, the Dodgers um, are, you know, to their credit, they did a $100 million renovation over the off season, and, you know, did a lot of sort of nice behind-the-scenes things. I mean, I haven't, I haven't seen them firsthand, but certainly from, uh, you know, the photos I've seen, it seems like they did a decent job of sort of, you know, respecting the the ballpark that's, uh, you know, historic at this point, um, but really sort of improving some of the some of the experience for the players and the fans and stuff like that, um, sort of along the lines what the Red Sox did with Fenway Park a few years ago. Um, and they spent the $100 million themselves, the Atlanta Braves apparently, ownership, apparently, and this just you know was just reported yesterday, are and I'm assuming not a April Fool's joke, <laughs> are saying, oh yeah, Turner Field, you know, it's uh, 17 years old now. It goes all the way back to the '96 Olympics. Um, you know, we're obviously going to need to do some uh, some improvements on that, and then started talking about you know all the benefits, the economy that it would be if they if they you know built new concessions areas or whatever it is that they're thinking of, new scoreboards, um, and then said, oh, yeah, so we'll probably fund it with a combination of some money from the team and some city and state and federal money. Yeah. So, you know, it, I think that we've seen it in football, really, where there's a whole slew of teams that have, have begun these requests, and I'm a little worried that this is going to be the start of it in baseball because, again, you've got, I think, you know, 14 out of the 30 stadiums were built between, like, Open between like ninety nine and two thousand, and they're all ripe for um, for teams to come back and sort of make demands of, oh, you know, this place is nice, but it would be even nicer if you guys <laughs> would just build us whatever. Yeah. Um, and you know, we've been I've been predicting this for a while now that you know teams are going to sort of go back to the start of the line and uh, and start asking for subsidies again, and I think we're starting to see it. Yeah. Well, we'll leave off with this since it is the start of the baseball season. Any World Series predictions? Clearly the Astros. The Astros are an unstoppable juggernaut. (laughs) Um, You know, I I could probably make a wild guess and it would sound reasonable, but um, I think, you know, you can predict who's going to win the divisions pretty well in baseball, but predicting who's going to end up in the World Series. I mean, who thought last year, who had Giants versus Tigers, you know? Um, my friend Mark Normandin at the SB Nation just um, did a report where he uh, had his cat pick the winners of the World Series. He like put kibble on different team logos and had his cat pick it. And his cat came up with the Braves beating the Rays, which, <laughs> sure, that's reasonable. <laughs> that's reasonable. <laughs> so I'm going with Mark's cat. Braves over Rays. Yeah, I, 
<laughs> Actually, um, I think I'm going to pick the Giants again versus the Oakland A's. It's a rematch of 1989. I would love that. And that could totally happen. Anything could totally happen. Anything can... thing about baseball, except the Astros. Yeah, except the Astros. Well, I mean, the Rangers have kind of shot themselves in the foot with their handling of Nolan Ryan, and the Angels are a mess. So I can see Oakland winning that division. That's just totally conceivable. Yeah. yeah. So anyways, uh, Neil DeMoss, he runs a... a blog at failedtheschemes.com and wrote a book by the same name. Thanks for joining us on the show and we'll talk to you next week. Talk next week. Bye. Okay, bye. This this is the Head of McCoy Show. <laughs>